<laughs> okay. <laughs> Any Mission Impossible fans out there? Come on, y'all. I have been a fan of Mission Impossible since the 60s when the iconic TV show came out, which spawned, of course, all the Tom Cruise movies for about the last two and a half decades. And, um, you know, they all start out the same, right? With, in, in a dark room with a, a mysterious voice on a recording telling the hero spy, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is... And then he would lay out the mission, which of course was always very dangerous, which is why the hero had a choice to make it or not. But of course he always chose it, right? And it always seemed that the mission turned out to be possible after all, but not without a lot of heart-stopping moments, right? Not without a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And I don't know why I thought about this week, about that this week as I was studying Esther, but you know, it did seem to me that Mordecai was asking something impossible of her. He was asking her to rescue her people. And he told her, you know, God doesn't need you to do that, but what if he raised you up to do that? What if this is your destiny? It was a defining moment for her. It was a moment of decision. Will she step up and own her destiny, or will she shrink back in fear? Well, we don't usually have big dramatic moments like that with big dramatic decisions to make, do we, thankfully? But we have a lot of small moments and a lot of small decisions that are every bit as potentially life-altering as that. And so God poses the same question to us. Will you step up and own what I'm asking you to do today? Most of the time, that means continuing to be who you are in Christ, faithfully living day in and day out, honoring him in your work and in your, your relationships, treating others as you would have them treat you. And that's no small task sometimes, is it? But sometimes, stepping up means a little bit more than that. And I wouldn't be surprised if in our practices over the last few weeks, especially in our fasting and prayer, and then this week as we were to ask God to help us notice the marginalized and the vulnerable in our path, if you sense God calling you, maybe, to do a little more than usual, to step out of your comfort zone, perhaps, and do something more proactive to advance God's kingdom in your community, in your neighborhood, in your workplace in your home, in your world. And maybe you don't feel quite qualified or experienced enough for that. God's assignments are usually bigger than we are, and so there's this voice in your head that says, you can't do that. You don't have the know-how, you don't have the energy, you don't have the resources, you sure don't have the time. Surely that's somebody else's job. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like you don't have what it takes to do what God is calling you to do? Ever feel like your mission is impossible? I feel like that a whole lot. Every time I stand up here, every time I write a Bible study, every time I host another neighborhood outreach, how do we as Christians step up and into the life that God intends for us to live with boldness and clarity, despite the uncertainty and fear that inevitably comes when God taps us on the shoulder and says, your mission should you choose to accept it, is, well, Esther can teach us a thing or two about that. 
And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week at the end of chapter 4 with Mordecai urging her to step up and use her position to rescue the entire Jewish race from annihilation at the hands of the two most powerful men in the universe at that time. That's no small assignment for a young and inexperienced queen, is it? We're going to spend some time diving into what that decision meant for Esther personally, as well as what it means for us. And then we're going to walk through scene by scene chapters 5, 6, and 7 to discover the ever-present and unseen hand of God at work as a result of Esther's decision to step up. And as always, we'll draw out the relevance for our lives as well, for all of our defining moments, big and small. Okay? Here we go. So, with Mordecai's famous last words to Esther in chapter 4, he said, If you remain silent... At this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther's mission was a rescue mission, should she choose to accept it. She's frightened, and with good reason. Because as she told Mordecai, she says, it is common knowledge. Everywhere, everyone around here knows that any man or woman, including the wife of the king, who dares to approach him without being summoned is subject to death. Unless, of course, the king is in a good mood that day and he extends the golden scepter. And you just never knew about old King Xerxes, did you? This is Esther's defining moment. Up to this point in the story, she seems to have lived her whole life just trying to please people, just trying to stay under the radar, and she was very good at it. She obeyed Mordecai in everything, including his instruction to hide her true identity as a Jew, which involved a detail in this story that I want to bring out because I think it's important. When Esther was born, her Jewish parents named her Hadassah which means myrtle. Myrtles are attractive, evergreen, flowering shrubs that are native to Israel. And in the writings of the prophets, myrtles came to symbolize God's restoration of Israel and the fulfillment of his promises. And so Hadassah's Jewish name was a reminder of that, a reminder of God's promise to his people. But someone, I'm not sure who, and I don't know when it happened, someone took away Hadassah's name and gave her another name, Esther, a Persian name. And many people think it was a derivative of the Near Eastern goddess, Ishtar. The exchange of names was a symbolically profound loss for Esther. It symbolized the loss of her true identity. After Esther was rounded up with the hundreds of other virgins from the empire, she spent six months not just getting beauty treatments, but being groomed in the manners, the protocol, the values, and the culture of Persia. And she complied on every point. The court culture taught her how to dress, how to conduct herself, even what to eat. You might recall that Jews had special dietary laws. But if Esther insisted on keeping them, then her true identity as a Jew would have been revealed. So she ate what she was given. Unlike Daniel and his friends in Babylon, but that was their story. Also, 
the ancient Persian culture apparently had no concept of the sanctity of the body for marriage like the Jewish culture did. But if Esther refused to have sex with a man, not her husband, or if she refused to marry a Gentile as the law forbade, then her true identity would have been exposed. And so she did what she thought she had to do. Carolyn Justice James writes this, until the crisis, Esther lived by the culture's view of who she was and, that, and what gave her value. She had been warned by Vashti's experience and by Mordecai's solemn warnings to remain quiet, to stay out of trouble, to keep her convictions to herself. She learned that what truly mattered about her was on the outside. No one looked beneath the surface. No one engaged her mind, challenged her to think. No one inspired her to look around for opportunities to build God's kingdom. No one needed Esther at least not for anything significant. So, for a long time, Esther went along to get along, as we say. I'm not judging her. I would have done the same thing. I'm just pointing out that she was a real human being like I am, who sometimes forgets my true identity. And yet, God used her to accomplish a seemingly impossible mission. And if he could use Esther to do kingdom work, then maybe he can use me, and maybe he can use you. Do you ever forget who you are as a believer and go along to get along? Do you ever not speak up when you could? Do you ever give in to temptation to be less than who you are because you've forgotten in any real practical sense that God deeply loves you and he has a better way for you to live? And that he actually has a purpose for your life beyond yourself for such a time as this? Do you ever forget that people desperately need to know that God loves them and Jesus died for them? I have. I do forget that all the time. But the reality is that God has called us to join him in his rescue mission. To let people know, to let the people around us know that they are deeply and utterly loved. But we've got to get over our fears and our false identities before we'll step out and do that. And so let's look at Esther's response at her defining moment because it begins her transformation from fearful Esther to a very brave Hadassah. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. By the way, this is the first mention of any religious activity in the book. And it implies because fasting for the Jews always was accompanied by prayer. And it was a sign of humility and repentance of sin. And it was always on occasions when they were in distress and they needed to beg God for his mercy. So Esther says, don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Okay, so what just happened here? Mordecai had instructed Esther in chapter 4, verse 8, go to the king and beg for mercy. But Esther says, okay, I'll do that. But not before we, you and I in the entire Jewish community in Susa, first goes and begs for mercy from God. 
from the Lord our God, Adonai Eloheinu. Now you go make that happen, Mordecai. Sounds like someone's finally growing a backbone. <laughs> Esther's the one giving orders now, and Mordecai is delighted to comply because she is finally owning her true identity. Not Esther, queen of Persia, but Hadassah, child of Abraham, child of the promise, child of God. And that meant something significant and powerful. See, the Jews were God's chosen people, but do you remember why he chose them? It wasn't because they were so special or so good. It was simply because God loved them. He chose them by his grace to know him, to live in his presence, and to enjoy his blessings through obedience to his good and gracious laws. And the goal was that their blessed nation would be like a city on a hill shining God's light into a world where people lived in fear and in darkness, worshiping all kinds of other gods who were not gods at all. God wanted to woo the world to himself through his people because God so loved the world. And he still does. The Jews failed in their mission, which is why they were in exile. But even still, God's promises remained. Moses predicted they would fall away from God and experience his discipline. And so he wrote these words to them from Deuteronomy 4. And I'm sure Mordecai taught these words to Esther. Moses wrote, but from there, that is from their places of exile. He said, you will search again for the Lord your God. And if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. In the distant future, when you're suffering all these things, you will finally return to the Lord your God and listen to what he tells you. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the solemn covenant he made with your ancestors. That was the basis for Esther's appeal that she called her people to make um, as they fasted and prayed. God's consistent promise to the Jews through Abraham and then through Moses and then through David and then through all of the prophets was that he would bring salvation to the world through them. And ultimately that salvation would come through the Messiah, the true king of Israel who would come from the line of David. And so Esther's story fits seamlessly into the biblical narrative as she is being called not only to rescue herself and her people at this time, but in rescuing them, she is rescuing the bloodline of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. God didn't need Esther to accomplish his plan. God is the savior of the big story as well as the Savior in all of our smaller stories. But if she would step up and trust God, he could use her to literally save the world. And God bless her, she did it. She played her part in making it possible for all of us to be here today. Just let that sink in a minute. The consistent story of the Bible since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve messed things up through their disobedience, is that God is on a rescue mission to save the world. Because all people, he loves all people of all nations at all times and in all places. That's the first thing we need to understand if we're going to understand the Bible and the book of Esther. 
The second thing we need to understand is that God calls his people out of their fear, out of their complacency to join him in his mission. Because to be identified with God is to have a mission. We are missionary disciples, we like to say around here. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Barry preached on Mark 3, and he brought out that Jesus wants us. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to be with him and to carry on his work, his kingdom work in the world. But to do that, we, like Esther, have to own our true identity as God's children by faith. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a child of God, and you belong to the people of God. And as such, you have a purpose. You have a mission, should you choose to accept it. If Esther were here, perhaps she would be asking you and me, what if God is calling you to play your part in bringing the people of your world out of the darkness and into the light and life of God? Perhaps it's your neighbor, your coworker, your client, your boss, your neighbor, your friend, your family member. She would say, don't be lulled to sleep by the culture's message that your value depends on how you look and your ability to please people. Own your true identity. Get rid of your false identities and so you can get on with what God's calling you to do. And so I wonder today, what false identities, what invisible labels have you been wearing around that maybe hinder you from doing what God's called you to do, from accepting your mission? If you had a little sticker right now that you could put over your name tag, what would it say? Um, mine would say, maybe like Esther's, people pleaser, or maybe clueless, or maybe fearful. <laughs> Well, maybe yours would say something like control freak or someone else's might say misfit, unwanted, invisible. Yours might say something positive like beautiful or smart or charming. But whatever label you or someone else has given you in your life, you need to know that if you belong to Jesus, he is your true identity. He would put beloved disciple on your name tag. To follow Jesus in the way of a disciple is to own his identity so that you can do the work he did, which is to point people to the unconditional love and grace of God. To own your true identity is to own your mission. And that is both the starting point and the turning point of our stories as it was for Esther's story. And the tension in her story is ratcheting up in chapter 5 as she comes to the end of her fast, and now it's time to act. This is it for her. This is another defining moment for her. She's fasted, she's prayed, she's declared her good intention, but now it's time to get up and get dressed and go face her biggest fear and the biggest obstacle to her mission. Make no mistake, when you own your true identity and accept your mission, there will be obstacles because we have an enemy. It's the same old enemy that God's people have had since Genesis 3. Satan hates God's people, and he wants to make us feel helpless and hopeless and powerless and afraid. But those are false labels. Those are lies. And I imagine Esther's heart is pounding as she puts on her robe and no doubt matching earrings. And I'm sure she breathes another prayer as she puts on her tiara and bravely approaches her very unstable and impulsive husband, the king. 
and didn't we all breathe a huge sigh of relief that he happened to be in a good mood that day and he extended the royal scepter to her. In fact, he promised to give her anything she wanted up to half the kingdom. Ah, what a relief. And so Esther just completely loses it and she breaks down and she has a big old long ugly cry at his feet begging for mercy and why are you laughing? That's not what happened. That's what would have happened if it had been me. But Esther, a.k.a. Hadassah, is cool as a cucumber, as she meekly says, um, Oh, king, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, I would just love it if you and Haman would join me for a banquet that I've already prepared for you. What? What? When I first read this story for the first time, I thought, no, 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 what is she doing? She, she's chickening out. She's just completely lost her nerve. Maybe she's procrastinating. I'm projecting all that because that's what I would have done. <laughs> but no, she's actually following the protocol she learned for presenting a request. Back in that culture, actually, the same is true in all honor, shame cultures. You don't come out and ask for what you want like we do here in the West. You have to beat around the bush a little bit. You had to ask for small favors and then sort of work your way up to the main thing that you actually wanted. By the way, aren't you glad we don't have to approach God that way? I love that contrast in our lesson today between the two kings, between the little king Xerxes, whom I've nicknamed Jerkseys. <laughs> Arrogant, unpredictable. Contrast that with the true king, humble, accessible, unchanging, who welcomes us just as we are into his presence, and he already knows what we need before we need, even need to ask him. Apparently, in those three days of fasting, Esther had not just been praying, she had been planning. Now, she had already prepared to die. If I perish, I perish, she said, completely surrendered to God's will. But it's one thing to say to God, your will be done. It's another thing to say, Lord, what specifically would you have me do next to accomplish your will? I imagine Esther and perhaps Mordecai together strategizing the next steps. But I totally believe that God inspired those two banquets because of what happened between them. The irony was just too delicious, pun intended. So Esther asked the king to do her a favor, but really she was doing him one because she knew the way to a man's heart, right? <laughs> Join me for dinner and bring your best friend Haman. But it wasn't just dinner. The, the word is banquet and the root word in the old language of the Bible is drink, a place of drinking. And so a banquet was a feast with drinking. And, um, but back in that day, they didn't drink their wine until after the meal was over. Anyway, I just love to imagine Esther sitting there in that situation. Here's Esther, a young teenage girl, you realize that, sitting between the two most powerful men on the planet at that time. I would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear that conversation around that table. I wonder if Esther said anything at all during dinner or if she just had to sit there and listen as those two proud men went on and on about themselves. But anyway, one thing at least I think that we need to draw out as this scene sort of comes to a close 
is that when you own your true identity and you step out in faith to own your mission, you will find the courage you need to face any obstacle. And no obstacle is insurmountable. She's having dinner with the king and Haman. And that banquet must have gone pretty well because after dinner, while they're drinking wine, the king asked Esther again what she wanted. Again, he offered up to half her king, his kingdom. And again, she put him off until the next day. Oh my goodness, she's making me so nervous. But of course, we know what happened that very night while she and Mordecai were sleeping. All kinds of crazy things happened during the night, right? Haman had been so proud after he left that banquet that he'd been the only one invited to dine with the king and queen. But Mordecai, you know, failed to show him the proper respect that he thought he deserved. And so that made him so furious. It just so ticked him off that when he went home and he told his wife and all his friends all about it, they came up with this wonderful plan. They said, Haman, why don't you build a 75-foot gallows and then go and persuade the king to hang Mordecai on it the next morning? Well, that seemed like a great idea to Haman. And so that's how he spent his night, overseeing that little building project. And no doubt, trying to figure out how he was going to persuade the king to let him hang Mordecai. Now, just pretend you don't know the rest of the story for a minute or what happened next. Because, you know, we never know what's going to happen next in our stories, right? We're hopeful for a good outcome for Esther and Mordecai after that first banquet because the king was nice. But this story is taking a terrible turn right now. <laughs> the outcome seems inevitable. And it's disastrous for Mordecai and Esther. If Haman gets his way, Mordecai will be dead by noon the next day because Jerxes seems all too easily <laughs> persuaded by evil Haman. No one knew the evil that was being planned in the dark of the night, but God did. And he is always at work to accomplish his mission, even while we're sleeping. It was no coincidence that the king couldn't sleep that night. And it was no coincidence that he had his servant bring him the most boring book in his library. <laughs> it was the record book of all the events that had happened in his reign. Um, which by that time was at least seven years, probably a little more. So it's a pretty big book. And the form of the Hebrew verb for reading was that it was a continuous reading, suggesting that the servant didn't just go in, plop open the book, put his finger down, and, oh, what do you know? There's the incident of Mordecai saving the king's life, but no record of his reward. No, it suggests that the king had sat up listening the entire night until the next morning. Right before Haman arrived, bright and early, to implore the king to have Mordecai hanged on his rather ostentatious 75-foot gallows. In fact, Haman was just in time for the king to appoint him to very personally and publicly honor his enemy, Mordecai, to his very own personal and public humiliation. God had been working all night long behind the scenes, coordinating the timing of events to turn the tide of the story. And we love the rich irony of it all, don't we? But before we move on to the next scene, I just want to pause and remind you that as you lie down tonight, God will still be at work. Sleep is an act of faith. 
When you own your true identity and you step out in faith, not only will you have the courage to face any obstacle, but you can trust God with any outcome. Because with God, no outcome is inevitable, no matter how bleak things look on any given day. So we've kindly, finally come to the big reveal, chapter 7. There they are at dinner again. Esther, a.k.a. Hadassah, Jerxes, and Hangman. Oh, Haman. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. Back in the day, the dinner tables were low. And people reclined on couches while they ate. And I imagine the conversation this time was a bit more subdued after Haman's royal humiliation. But the king probably didn't even notice it. And I imagine he's dying of curiosity by now to know what Esther wants. So again, he asks her for the third time what her request is. Again, he offers her half his kingdom. So this is it. This is the moment she's been waiting and preparing for. And I imagine she's rehearsed her words a thousand times. Her mission was to call out injustice and to speak up for people who could not speak for themselves. And she is brilliant. She uses Haman's own words from the edict to convict him. And Xerxes is furious. He finally understands what a fool he has been to entrust Haman with all that power. And Xerxes even leaves his wine to go out of the room, to go to the garden, to maybe cool off, to maybe figure out what to do next. Or perhaps he already knew what he was doing for once. Because you see, Persian protocol dictated that no one but the king was allowed to be left alone with a woman from the royal harem, much less the queen. So in leaving Haman alone with Esther, he was really sentencing his death. And Haman completely panicked. He knew that Esther, the queen, the Jewess, now had the power over him. And he fell all over her to plead for his life. And the story just drips with irony, doesn't it? The man who had orchestrated her death and the death of her people was now at the mercy of Esther. And the story also rings very true, doesn't it? Because there's very, something very satisfying about poetic justice. Haman wound up being hanged on the very gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Yay! <laughs> but we can't forget the story isn't over yet. There's still another huge obstacle to overcome. There is another outcome that's very uncertain that we wait with bated breath to see what will happen. It's that little matter of the edict that cannot be overturned. It seems hopeless for the Jews, even though Haman's dead. But we'll have to wait till next week to see what happens with that. And really, when you think about it, all our stories are sort of hanging till tomorrow, aren't they? And so remember, wherever you are in your story, I want you to think of Esther and Mordecai. And remember that though things may seem hopeless right now, the story isn't over. It's never over until God says it is. The outcome might see it, seem inevitable, but it isn't. The obstacles might seem insurmountable, but they aren't. The mission might seem impossible, but it isn't. Because when you put your true, when you own your true identity and you step out in faith to accomplish your mission, no mission is impossible. You will find the hope you need 
to accomplish it. In preparing for this message, I took a little stroll down memory lane trying to remember all of my God-given assignments over the years. I remembered the first time I owned my true identity as a child of God. I was 10 or 12, and I had a lot of questions about faith, about God and heaven and hell, and there were questions that I just couldn't get answered to my satisfaction on my own, even from my parents, my church. But through an amazing series of events, God orchestrated things so that I could hear the gospel, so that I could put my faith in Jesus to forgive my sins and to know that I was a child of God, and not because I was good, not because I'd done anything good, but simply because God loved me. That was my new true identity. I was a beloved child of God. But it took me a long time to realize that I was called to discipleship. I thought there were only 12 disciples, and they lived a long time ago. But God brought people into my life to teach me how to understand his word and what it meant to obey him. And over the years, there have been many things that I distinctly felt were my assignments from him, my missions, should I choose to accept them as they were. (laughs) Sometimes we don't recognize them because they come in the ordinariness of life. One assignment I distinctly remember as God's calling was when I was a young mom. Somewhere in the middle of all the toys and the dirty diapers and the despair, God tapped me on the shoulder and he said, these are your five little disciples. That was a defining moment for me. That was a turning point for me. It changed my whole outlook on a whole lot of ordinary days and a whole lot of personal sacrifices and a whole lot of repeating the same words over and over again. At some point, I realized God was also calling me to teach his word in the middle of all of that. And I remember I resisted it because I felt like my hands were already full. And I felt like, who am I? I have no training or experience. And God said, well, I don't choose the strong or the wise. I choose the foolish and the weak. And I said, well, then I guess I'm qualified. (laughs) So here I am. (laughs) But it used to take me an entire year to put together a 35-minute biblical message. I know I only have 30 minutes, don't worry up there, but I'm I'm probably late, but anyway. Years later, God tapped me on the shoulder to go to seminary, and I said, God, do you know how old I am? And God said, yeah, I even know the number of hairs on your head, and so what? Moses was 80 when I called him, and I said, I know, but I'm not Moses. And he said, I know, you are called by my name. Own your identity, accept my mission. Your age means nothing. So I did. But did God make it easy for me? Oh, no. There were obstacles all over the place. There were outcomes that were very uncertain, especially when I had exams. (laughs) And in the middle of that calling, I was also called at some point to take care of Andy's mom, who had dementia, and then to take care of Andy, who was battling cancer. And none of it was easy, and a lot of it was scary, and I wouldn't trade any of it. Because when you are with God on mission, you sense his presence more than at any other time. A couple of years ago, God tapped this introvert on the shoulder again to start a neighborhood outreach. And I said, really, God? And he said, really. And I said, but how? You know I'm not good at this sort of thing. And he said, well, your friend Karen's going to help you because I'm tapping her on the shoulder too. (laughs) And I got to tell you, it's been one of the biggest blessings of our lives to be used by God in our neighborhood. He's doing some amazing things. 
What I'm saying is I'm always scared at first. I never feel adequate enough. And you know why? Because God's assignments are always bigger than we are. And he doesn't need us to be adequate. He wants us to find our adequacy in him. And we do that by owning our true identity in Christ and remembering that God's mission assignments are huge privileges, things we get to do should we choose to accept them. And I wonder, what is he calling you to do today? And if today might represent a defining moment for you. And if so, I want to encourage you to say yes. Because God is on a rescue mission. And he's inviting you. He's calling you to join him. And when you do, when you own your true identity, and you step out in faith and accept your mission, you will find the courage to face any obstacle, and you can trust God with any outcome, and you will have the hope to accomplish any mission because no obstacle is insurmountable, no outcome is inevitable, and no mission is impossible. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and merciful God, and you call us by name. We are yours, and you give us the privilege of joining you in your kingdom work. Would you help us, Lord? to step up and own our true identity in Jesus and to accept whatever mission you're calling us to. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.